Welcome to Leading with Purpose. I'm your host, Dennis Morton, founder and principal of Morton Brown Family Wealth. Today's conversation is about one of the most meaningful events in the life of an entrepreneur, selling your business. Some business owners will experience multiple transactions as buyers and sellers in the course of their career. For others, though, selling is a one-time transformational event that's full of complicated decisions, decisions that can be a test of leadership, emotion, and vision. On this podcast, I interview a spectrum of entrepreneurs and thinkers to learn principles of leadership, and my goal is to help you use these ideas to make more confident decisions in your profession and in your community. In the episode today, we're going to learn about the landscape for mergers and acquisitions, what to expect in the process of a transaction, and the mindset that can help entrepreneurs complete a successful deal. My guest today is attorney Colin Keefe. Colin is a shareholder and chair of the Mergers and Acquisitions Group at Fitzpatrick, Lentz & Buba. His practice has an emphasis on representing sellers in eight and nine-figure strategic and private equity transactions, with buyers being both national and international. Colin represents banks and financial institutions in many of the Lehigh Valley's largest commercial financings. In addition, he handles construction contracting, real estate sales and acquisitions, and general corporate law. Now, prior to his legal career, Colin served in the United States Marine Corps and was decorated for heroism in combat during the Battle of Baghdad in 2003. So Colin, welcome. And first, thank you for your service in uniform. How are you? I'm doing well, and uh, thank you for your service as well, Dennis. I love that we have that in common. It's something that we've, uh, we've talked about before. And uh, yeah, kind of wanted to explore just the arc of your career, right? So your experience in the Marine Corps shaped you professionally. It shaped some of your work in the community, and we're going to touch on that later. But Talk us through the arc of your career from civilian to Marine to attorney. Sure. You know, my career as an attorney um, is in many ways builds upon my my earlier life. And so it's really sort of, in a weird way, the arc of my life as opposed to the arc of my career that's relevant. So I grew up in New York in Westchester, the suburbs just north of the city, where I was a fairly typical suburban kid. Had had my angst and what whatnot as we all do. I came out here to the valley to attend Lehigh University and run track. Unfortunately, that was back in '97. Unfortunately, the first time around, I didn't do as well as one might hope, um, and I, I only made it three semesters at Lehigh. And then I wasn't doing how I wanted to do academically. I wasn't doing how Lehigh wanted me to do academically. Um, and and we mutually decided we'd be best if I if we parted ways. Uh, my family has a strong tradition of military service. My father is a decorated army veteran. Um, both my grandfathers were in World War II. My great grandfathers were in World War One. It, go, it goes all the way back. Wow. Uh, so you know that was definitely something I'd, I'd kept in the back of my mind. And because my father was in the army, and I had a need to be better than my father, I joined the Marines. <laughs> <laughs> No offense taken either. <laughs> so, uh, you know, apologies to all the Army vets out there. But, you know, what, what, what is life without a little inter-service rivalry? Right. <laughs> so I joined the Marine Corps in 99. I served for nearly five years. I was in the infantry, a heavy machine gunner. And towards the end of my enlistment, I was a sergeant with a uh, combined anti-armor attack team in the 3rd Battalion, 5th Marines, and we fought in the uh, initial invasion and occupation of Iraq in 2003. So you and I were there at the same time. I didn't realize that, that our service periods coincided almost 
symmetrically. I started in '99 and was and was in the same theater in 2003. That's interesting. I, I was not aware of that. Where were you? I was in Kuwait. I was at Ali Al Salim Air Base. I was Patriot Missiles, so we kind of provided the overhead cover for the maneuver units going north. Well, I was one of those maneuver units going north. <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. We were one of the very first uh, across the giant sand berm that separated Iraq and Kuwait. Mm-hmm. We blew a massive hole in that and, and drove through. We took the oil fields in the south and then went up between the rivers to Baghdad, to the east of the army. The army was going, sort of hooking in Baghdad from the southwest. Then I, I, after that, actually I went up to points north for a little while, and then I occupied a town called Diwaniya for about three or four months before I rotated out. So when did you end up back in the United States? Uh, So we rotated out in July, I believe it was. My enlistment had actually run out about eight months prior. Mm-hmm. There was a large group of people in my unit who, for whom that was the case. And so they actually rotated us out in July of '03. Wow. We really did overlap. That was exactly the time that I came back. So you, you kind of went through that initial phase of the invasion, and then I'd been stop-lost as well. And then you kind of come, come back. Did you immediately leave the Marine Corps? I mean, was there a window of time? Yeah, I pretty immediately left the Marine Corps. Mm-hmm. They processed us out pretty quickly. I drove back across the country to Lehigh, and there was a dean there by the name of Dean Basso. She was the dean of students. Around about uh, mid to late August, about a week before classes started, I just showed up at her office, and I said, look, I flunked out of here about five years ago. But I just got back from Iraq about two weeks ago, and I'd like to get back into school. Do you think that could happen? And she didn't hesitate. She didn't call somebody to ask. She just said yes, and she marched me right down to the registrar's office and registered me for classes. Wow. <laughs> she, she was great. So that, that whole time that you were waiting, you were in limbo, you were serving overseas, were you career planning? as you were, like, were you thinking, okay, on the other side – now I know what I'm going to do, or when civilian life comes, this is the path I'm going to take? Or is that still up in the air? You know, I toyed with the notion of making a career out of the Marine Corps, but that had never really been my plan. I had a pretty solid notion that I wanted to go back to school. I don't know if I had thought too far beyond that, but I, but I definitely knew I wanted to go back to school, and then I wanted to go back to Lehigh. Mm-hmm. Matters post-Iraq were not at the top of my mind while I was in Iraq, I can say. Right. <laughs> Yeah, I remember that stage of life thinking I was supposed to be getting out in the spring of 2003, and then deployment came up and overseas and everything else. And getting back, I kind of jumped in. I remember I got back to Pennsylvania, got married one week, started a job the next week. But yeah, it really, it deferred my future planning a little bit. For you, it was it was back to college. For me, it was a, it was a job here in Allentown. So what, what were you going to study? Had you declared a major in your first go-round? Uh, no, no. So my my mother is a doctor and my father is a lawyer slash investment banker. And I had toyed with the notion of following one of those two career paths. Relatively early on in my second time around at Lehigh, I think I settled into the notion that I wanted to explore law school. It was a bizarre transition, I, I, I can say, initially being back at college, because Obviously, being in an active combat zone is sort of one extreme of the circumstances one can live in. And then, you know, somewhere in between there is the real world. And then somewhere on the other side of that is the bizarre bubble that is life in college. Right. So I, I just 
could not possibly have had less in common with my fellow college students. It was an interesting transition. Did it change your work habits? Oh my God, yes. When you approach college as a 24-year-old veteran who's been been doing things that are legitimately difficult, college is not actually difficult. <laughs> um, if you actually go to class to do some homework, study for your tests, etc., maybe if you're in some intense engineering discipline or whatever, but you know, I was a history major. This stuff is not hard. <laughs> okay. So we, that's, that's another thing we have in common. We're both history majors. So that's, oh my uh, Lord. <laughs> yeah. And I promise we're going to get to mergers and acquisitions, but I, I love the origin story here. Was there anything that coming out of the Marine Corps you thought you learned, but a couple of years afterwards you said, mm, nope, actually this is what I really learned from my time in the Marine Corps? The Marine Corps places a great deal of emphasis on accountability for yourself, which I think is a very important aspect of leadership, but also accountability for others and holding others to the standard that is necessary. And it it's frankly too harsh for a civilian environment. I think I was not as compassionate or empathetic as one should be coming out of the Marine Corps. It's not a it's not an environment that's big on compassion or empathy. I think there were some things in that regard I had to unlearn. Mm. I like that. And the reason I ask is that job that I took immediately out of the army, it was a management role. And I said, I learned management in my army experience. And, and, and after about 18 months of not really enjoying that, I had to step back and say, maybe that's not what I learned. Maybe that's not what I enjoyed or even what I'm good at particularly, or that, that particular style of management for you know a Fortune 500 company. And after some thoughtful reflection, I realized what I learned was how to be a consultant. I was good at when the general came on site and said, Lieutenant, what's the situation? I could provide that person with the right information so that they could make good decisions on all the other things that they had to do the rest of that day. So I remember turning to my wife and saying, it's not this, it's actually that. And I think I know a place where I can practice it. And that was the decision to become a financial advisor, to, to go use that skill. So thank you for, for humoring me on that, because I think it was an important realization that, okay, I learned a lot of things in that military experience, but certain ones are really what come back and apply for the rest of my career. Absolutely. Absolutely. So why this particular field of law? Did you think, I want to go into law school, but I want to have this business focus, this mergers and acquisitions. Was that seed planted? Uh, you know, absolutely. So my father actually does mergers and acquisitions as well. It's a little different. He invests in investment and acquisition and infrastructure projects. And that's actually what I started out doing as well. I'd you know, always been interested in what he does and we talked about it. So I had a little bit of a, a background there. From Lehigh, I went on to Georgetown Law and then I actually ended up in the infrastructure finance group uh, at a large firm in Manhattan called Sherman and Sterling. So I actually started on the finance end of things and then that quickly sort of transitioned in, in interesting ways. One big aspect of that was actually dealing with very large-scale construction contracts for power plants, dams, roads, that sort of thing. And they needed someone who could deal with the rather rough-around-the-edges construction contractors, and so they, they threw the ex-Marine at them. Because, <laughs> you know, there's actually no one on Earth who's more foul-mouthed than an ex-Marine. So <laughs> I, I... <laughs> another, another useful skill set. 
<laughs> other useful skill set that actually took me a long time to break, I have to tell you. So there was nothing they could say that would shock me, and I got along well with those guys. And then that transitioned into doing a lot of infrastructure acquisition work. And then that transitioned into just doing sort of general acquisition work. So in my career in New York, I was doing a blend of finance and sales and acquisitions of power companies, infrastructure companies, infrastructure projects, that sort of thing. Is it typical that early in your career to develop a niche rather than be a generalist even within that type of work? Is that Was that uncommon to develop that industry-specific niche early on? Not, not that uncommon at, at the very large firms in New York. There are there are a lot of lawyers in New York. <laughs> this is a no lawyer jokes podcast, so you're, you're on safe ground here. <laughs> uh, it's all right. I, I already took a shot at the army, so it's fine. <laughs> That's a good, good point. All fair. Um, at the largest firms, it is actually pretty common to develop a fairly narrow specialty and then move on from there. And I mean, I was relatively young. I was just an associate. I was a long way from making any common name for myself, but I received a tremendous amount of fantastic training and experience. You know, one of the other things about those large firms is they they throw you fairly directly into the fire and you work about 80 hours a week. So you really rack up a tremendous amount of knowledge and experience in a short time. Let's talk about the clientele that you're working with. One of the things I want to frame out as we talk about selling a business, mergers and acquisitions. Define small, mid, and large for us. Yeah. So in New York, I was dealing with transaction sizes that were generally in the billions with a B. In the Lehigh Valley, that's not the case. Mm -hmm. Generally, we will roughly refer to small companies as companies that have less than $25 million in revenue and the mid-market companies as those that have greater than $25 million in revenue up to about $500 million in revenue. Now, you'll see those definitions vary, but generally speaking, it's defined in terms of revenue when we draw a rough line around the $25 million mark. Companies might have less revenue, but they're very labor-intensive and have a lot of employees, and so we might consider them a mid-sized company. Once you've got a couple hundred employees going, no matter what you're doing, you know, you're a mid-sized company. Right. And then other companies may be doing something software-based or something like that, and they have an application that sells great, they've got the money pouring in, but it's still like four guys in an office somewhere, and that's still a small company. <laughs> so right. um, it's inherently fuzzy. So you get this experience at a large firm, then fast forward, you arrive in the Lehigh Valley, and the opportunity set is different. What changes for you when you start doing this type of work in a community like the Lehigh Valley? Well, I mean, I, I will say it all changed for the better. I, I very much enjoy what I do now more than I, what I did in New York. The Lehigh Valley is a fantastic place to be a lawyer and, and to be an M&A lawyer. So the Lehigh Valley is both literally and figuratively a AAA town, is how I often explain it. Well put, like that. It is not Philadelphia. It is not New York. But it is certainly not the back of beyond either. Right. And so you get an excellent mix of a certain level of size and sophistication to the businesses around here without having to deal with some of the things you might have to deal with in New York and Philadelphia and without having to navigate some of the hurdles you, you have to navigate there. Now, having said that, it is important for an attorney practicing here to be able to tangle with those private equity buyers out of the larger cities and their firms. But you have to sort of at the same time maintain a certain amount of small-time values 
responsiveness, personal relationships, um, pricing, frankly, mm-hmm. that comes with operating out of a place like the Lehigh Valley, whether by happenstance or by my own personal drive to succeed here, I happen to find myself and certainly my firm well-suited to bridge that gap. In 2019, my firm did half a billion dollars worth of M&A transactions. How has that trend been over the years? Has that been consistently growing? How has it changed over your career? It's it's grown quite a bit. And it's hard to say whether it's because the M&A practice here has grown and we've gotten more deals or because the Valley itself has grown and is doing more deals. Like most things in life, it's some of both, I imagine. Right. So we definitely are seeing a strong growth trend You know, prior to the world sort of ending in 2020. Right. But, but we were definitely seeing a strong growth trend. And frankly, we expect that to pick back up in 2021. Even 2020 was an off year in the M&A market by current standards of what we have come to expect as a firm and in the Valley, but it still wasn't bad. Mm -hmm. 2020 was only missing those $100, $200 million deals that we had been sort of more routinely handling in years past, what I'll call the the true middle market deals in the middle of the middle market, which is sort of the high end for the Lehigh Valley. Those dried up in 2020, Mm -hmm. but the smaller deals, you know, your $10, $20 million deals, your software company, your accounting firms, your mm-hmm. you know professional practices, uh, that chugged right along. That's what we've seen as well. The professional practices, we see it on the, on the financial side happening at an increased pace for sure. Yeah. And we've always had a pretty good line of business there. I would say it initially started with healthcare practices. Mm-hmm. And from there, we've branched out into other kinds of professional practices and now do that quite a bit. And this gets to my next question of, we're going to talk about the role of private equity versus strategic buyers. And maybe you can explain the difference between those two and where you're seeing more of those activities. For example, in financial practices, there are strategic buyers coming in because it's a retirement plan Mm -hmm. for the founding partners to to get out via being acquired by someone larger or merging their firms together. So talk a little bit about strategic versus private equity and what, what you see these days. Sure. So I'm actually also going to talk about platform companies and bridge the gap a little bit. Mm, there we go. A strategic buyer is a buyer in your industry, right? You'll hear references to vertical and horizontal acquisitions. A vertical acquisition is an acquisition of an entity at a different point in the supply chain than the acquirer, they can be consolidated with the acquirer and realize some synergies there, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Just to give a very simple example, you make cars, you buy a company that manufactures engines, and instead of that company having to realize a margin on the engine they sell to you and then you sell it to the consumer, you can consolidate that, make all that money yourself, Mm -hmm. right? Then you've got your horizontal mergers, which is there's someone else who does the exact same thing you do, You both make cars and you acquire that competitor either to eliminate the competition and just simply realize the profits they're getting because you think you can do it better or to expand geographically. That's a very common driver of deals in the Valley. To the extent you see that happening in a community like the Lehigh Valley, are people expanding in or is it companies in the Lehigh Valley expanding out? More the latter, but it certainly flows both ways. Mm -hmm. I think the most typical life cycle of a company in the Valley is to 
start here in the valley, capture some of the market here in the valley, do what they do and do it well, and then be acquired by a larger group that is looking for perhaps access not only to the markets in the valley, but all the markets on which we touch, mm-hmm. right? The Lehigh Valley enjoys an incredible geographic advantage over almost anyone in that we are an hour from the port of Newark, very significant, 90 minutes from the New York markets, 90 minutes from the Philadelphia markets, and, and you can distribute from here to the entire Northeast corridor. Right. When you're talking about your manufacturing, logistics, et cetera, companies, they love that. So you can run your operations out of here, distribute to the entire Northeast Corridor, and then drive your stuff an hour to the port and distribute to the world. There, there are an infinite variety of strategic buyers, but that's just an overview of some of the strategic buyers that might be coming into the Valley. Mm-hmm. There's also private equity buyers. That is traditionally, and these definitions can blur, but it's a group of financial investors looking to acquire companies not to improve their own operations, but to make money off that company. Mm-hmm. Generally speaking, and I'm overgeneralizing a lot, but generally speaking, it's with an eye towards growing that company and then turning around and selling it again on a five to 10 year time frame mm-hmm. and, and, and realizing profit on you know, the, the, the increased value of the company that, that they've put in over time. Those financial backers will be able to inject capital into the company, perhaps bring in expertise that the target company lacks. That's a traditional model. You're seeing now more and more there being a blending of the models where you're getting platform companies or roll-ups where the private equity model will say, all right, you know, I have a company that makes ice cream and it does a really good job at it. I'm also going to buy a company that makes popsicles and one that makes ice cream sandwiches and other freezer goods, Mm -hmm. right? And then I'm going to blend them all in and I'm going to have a freezer goods platform. Mm -hmm. So they'll buy half a dozen companies, realize some synergies between those companies in terms of distribution, manufacturing, back office, et cetera, et cetera. And then ultimately, again, the goal is generally to sell that larger platform off to a third party and again, make money. And now you can make even more money because you've operated as somewhat of a strategic buyer and realized some synergies from your purchase. Mm-hmm. And so theoretically, the whole is worth more than the sum of its parts. And the advantage to the seller, specifically on the platform, is that the ice cream maker gains some scale because the infrastructure of this larger entity allows them to accomplish something that they were going to have to do on their own, probably. Right. That's the idea. Yes. Okay. Yes. And in these platform purchases, or often in these private equity transactions, the initial seller will get what's colloquially referred to as a second bite at the apple. Mm -hmm. They will retain an interest in their company. They'll continue to run operations, apply all their know-how and expertise that got the company to the point where it is. And then when the company is sold the second time, they'll sell their retained 20% or whatever and get a whole lot more money that way on, on the increased value of the company. That's often an incentive to go the private equity mm-hmm. route. And then similar to platform companies, you've got what's termed as roll-ups, which is the horizontal merger version of a 
platform company. Mm -hmm. Instead of realizing synergies and bringing in different related companies, now you're bringing in a whole bunch of very similar companies, often establishing a big geographic footprint to do sort of one similar thing. And then again, you sell the larger entity after you've rolled up a lot of smaller entities. I see. Industries that are having a lot of roll-ups being done are often referred to as consolidating industries. You're going from a lot of players to fewer, bigger players. Now, pre-pandemic, the story was the world is awash in cash. There's a lot of liquidity flowing around, private equity sitting on war chest, looking around for deals. Then we have the, the floor fallout of the economy last winter and spring due to the pandemic. I can imagine there was a lot of salivating on the part of the private equity funds looking around saying, are there any deals out there? And fast forward into 2021, where are valuations now? Are there deals to be found? How is this, is cash finding decent companies at good prices uh, to do all this? So a lot of the cash is sitting out right now. The world at large thought that more of precisely that would happen than has. So you've had a couple things happen with the pandemic. Obviously, the bottom initially fell out, but then the stimulus back in spring was actually very effective. I've heard it referred to as the most effective economic stimulus in the history of the United States. And I think that may be accurate. Right. It really got a lot of money to a lot of the appropriate places it needed to go really pretty darn quickly for a government operation. You know, the PPP program especially worked. Now, were some of those funds misallocated? Of course, the economy was on fire. And the, the government was trying to spray it with a giant fire hose. Right. When you're trying to spray a fire with the fire hose, you don't get overly concerned when some of the water goes on the neighboring house. And that was the lesson from the great financial crisis, right? The history books have been written about 2007 to nine, And I think the lesson was, did not move quickly enough and not enough oomph behind the fiscal and monetary policies early on in that crisis. Yeah. And I think they did learn that lesson and they did a lot better this time. Right. So coming back to the perspective of the business owner or the potential seller, they may be looking around and saying, you know what? My business might be worth as much, if not more than it was 12 months ago, pre-pandemic. And what are my options here? So take us into the mind of someone who has engaged with you or, or has a private equity fund kicking the tires. Where are you finding these business owners right now? What are their concerns? How, how do you start an engagement with them? Well, I think there was a greater expectation of desperation, mm. right? That there would be a lot of desperate business owners and there weren't because of PPP, because of other things, there weren't a lot of desperate business owners. There were a lot of business owners who maybe struggled and had an off year, but they were kept afloat by PPP. And now they're looking around and saying, you know, I had planned to transition out, but 2020 was a bit of, of an off year. I need to rebuild a little bit, or I just need to make it clear that 2020 was an off year and that my financials, my uh, EBITDA, et cetera, is going to bounce back. And mm -hmm. I think once you get a couple quarters of that bounce back, I think you're going to have a rubber band effect where a lot of deals that might not have gotten done before because companies didn't present as well as they might have because of the pandemic are going to happen now. So that business owner who has perhaps been sitting on a company and been wanting to retire, been needing capital for growth, wanted to explore another opportunity, I think now they're in a position to, once things fully bounce back, to put their company forward in the best light. 
and say to these private equity groups, we're still sitting on cash, right? The market is still doing quite well. Mm-hmm. And you're still in this situation where there's cash. And so people want to make business acquisitions. And I think more sellers will come back to the market. And I think there'll be a surge in the back half of 21 because of that. If you're a seller right now and you've had some initial conversations with, with a private equity group or a strategic buyer, the first thing to do is get your books, your financial history in a position where you can tell your story. Right. Your financial statements are not just numbers on a sheet. They are the, the story and the history of your business. Oftentimes, especially with your smaller businesses, they aren't presented in the way to put your business in the best light. Mm-hmm. Presenting a business for sale is very different than operating a family business that you started and you know are making a nice living off of. It may make a whole host of sense for any number of tax or other reasons to have a company Maserati that you drive. <laughs> That's not actually tax advice. Please don't do that. But... <laughs> But if you're trying to sell that business, you don't really want to have the company Maserati on the books. Right. So the first thing to do is get everything in order to tell that story. And that, and that incorporates, that story is going to incorporate the past year. Right. And it, it's going to explain why your revenue was down, what sales you lost, what business you lost, what maybe what business you didn't lose, why that's in a position to come back. And that all has to be part of that narrative. And that narrative shift, that's the difference between it's the lifestyle mindset, that's the the company Maserati, the lifestyle mindset versus the enterprise Mm -hmm. mindset. Absolutely. And how do we think of this as as an enterprise that is beyond just the the current owner or the current, current ownership? Absolutely. You have to think of it as an enterprise and how it can succeed in the future under whatever ownership it might be. Right. So you've got to look at how you're going to tell that story and how many chapters into the book you need to be to put yourself in the best position to sell. Mm-hmm. Right now in February of 21, I kind of suspect that a lot of businesses aren't going to be quite yet to the time to sell the business chapter. Mm-hmm. There is a light at the end of the tunnel of this pandemic, but we're, we're still in the tunnel. Right. But once we come out of the tunnel, you know, once the cases drop and the vaccines are out and the, whatever whatever the new normal is, once we get there, and you can show that your business is there, then it's going to be time to pull, to pull that trigger. We work with entrepreneurs as well. And I think one of the challenges is accelerating that realization of the mindset that has to change enough in advance so you're not leaping through flaming hoops. Because sometimes the knock comes on the door and, and it comes unexpectedly that, hey, I'm willing to write you a check. Mm-hmm. Can I see what's under the hood here? And then you have to kind of race forward with all the things you just described. And I think the sooner that process starts, probably the fewer headaches and the more value created, obviously. Absolutely. It is never too early to start thinking of your business as an enterprise in that way. Probably 20% of the deals I do come from unsolicited offers. Yeah. Literally, you get a letter in the mail. So there's actually two chunks of unsolicited offers. There's literally the letter in the mail from the investment banker representing a private equity fund that's doing either a platform operation or a roll-up, mm-hmm. right? If you're in a consolidating industry, and if you are, you probably know it, you can probably expect that letter sooner rather than later. The other bucket of unsolicited offers are the relationship-driven ones, 
you you have one main customer or you know one large customer who's further up the supply chain and there's a relationship there and you've been working with Fred for 20 years and you trust each other you know and one day Fred says you know what Bob you're 65 why don't you sell me your company and that absolutely happens a lot too as i said in the intro this may be a, a one time event or at least one of the more meaningful events in an entrepreneur's career. And suddenly it's the high wire act, it's sticking the landing, it's, it's everything else. There's a check at the end. This could be the financial security for at least one or two generations. Mm -hmm. Now, when the stakes are high financially, entrepreneurs can be more susceptible to emotions like fear, impatience, greed, paralysis. What are some of the behavioral roadblocks to a successful transaction for an entrepreneur? Probably the most common is an inability or an unwillingness to, to let go. Mm. And if you've built a company over 25, 30 years, whatever it may be, um, you know, poured your blood, sweat, and tears in it, gotten your livelihood from it, you have an emotional relationship with that company, with the people that work there, and with the enterprise itself. It can be an intense emotional relationship. The concept that you're going to sell that company, let somebody else run it and do with it what they will, is difficult for some people in ways I totally understand. And so sometimes people will realize that if you sell your company for $10 million, you inevitably have to relinquish control. And then they'll try to control and micromanage other aspects of the transaction, the company. They'll grasp for control in other areas which will lead directly to the second biggest issue, letting deals die or obsessing over insignificant points, feeling the need to win, but losing the overall picture of the transaction as a whole. You have to define what winning means for you and stick with that, right? <laughs> also, you use that term letting go. Like, what does letting go mean? Because, you know, if you're only letting go of certain parts, well, those are the things you're holding on to are pretty valuable things. So Absolutely. what does letting go mean? What does, what does winning mean? And the most trouble people have letting go is when they're expected to stay on and run the company, mm. but they're not going to own it anymore, or they're only going to own, say, 20% of it, and they're going to be reporting to other masters now. Right. That can be a, a very lucrative formulation, but it's difficult. It's difficult when you, when you run your company your whole life to listen to somebody else try to tell you how to run it. People definitely struggle with that. In the context of defining what winning is, you have to look at the terms of a deal holistically. Mm -hmm. Every term of the legal documents exists in relationship to all the others, and the legal framework of the deal exists in relationship to the price and economic factors for the deal. The price is what it is, but in, in terms of when that's paid, escrows, earnouts, seller financing, et cetera, et cetera, those all allocate risk differently in a transaction. And what a lawyer does, what I do, A, I help with logistics, but that's sort of my secondary role. My, my primary role is to deal with the allocation of risk in a transaction. Mm -hmm. Who takes the risk for what? That comes through in what's called the representations and warranties and the indemnities in a transaction. The seller is going to retain responsibility for things that occurred prior to the closing of the transaction and for a whole bunch of statements they're going to have to make about the business 
that they're saying are true in order to establish the valuation, right? The underpinnings of that valuation are things like your financial statements are accurate. You don't have undisclosed liabilities. You don't have lawsuits hanging out there. You haven't done something that could result in lawsuits hanging out there. And there will be indemnities to the buyer if any of those things turn out to be untrue. If part of the price is being paid in an earnout, what are the terms of that earnout? What financial metrics have to be achieved? How likely are those to be achieved? That's all part of the risk that you're going to get paid what you think you're going to get paid. And what I do for my client, I frankly try to shift as much as to the risk to the other side as possible. Mm-hmm. And usually they have good lawyers who are trying to do the same thing. Right. But the client does need to accept that they will continue to bear some risk. I imagine there's got to be a translation from the military experience as well. That there's never a riskless scenario when you come from that background. It's always a measure of like what risks do we retain, which ones are we pushing off of the plate, but there's never a riskless transaction. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I think because of my military background, I definitely have a better appreciation of gradations of risk than uh, than most people. I think people tend to see things in black or white. Mm-hmm. They tend to see something as either inevitable or impossible. And so in both my work and my life, um, I definitely find that my military experience has enabled me to appreciate fine gradations of risk and adjust a transaction appropriately. You stayed engaged with the veteran community. You were telling me earlier about uh, one of the projects here locally, a cause that you've supported that specifically helps veterans. Can you tell us a little bit about Victory House? Sure. Victory House is a shelter on the south side of Bethlehem. It's specifically a men's shelter, and half the beds are dedicated to veterans specifically. The uh, homeless and rehabilitation and struggling population among men specifically is is an underserved population. It can be difficult for men struggling with homelessness, addiction, etc., issues of that nature to find services, and and Victory House really steps up and, and tries to fill that gap. They've been in operation for more than 30 years. We're actually coming up on our 35th anniversary. And they've done tremendous work in serving that population and transitioning them back into society. They, they, they do great work. I've been fortunate enough to be on the board for the last four years or so. Uh, Victory House is always looking for any help anyone can, can provide. If any listener can provide any support, just jump on their website, and it's, it's really a great cause. So the website for Victory House is www.victoryhouselv.org. Thank you for the work that, that you're doing there and th- for bringing that to our attention. It is an underserved population. So thank you for that. Absolutely. Colin, this has been a great conversation. Thanks so much for, for bringing your expertise. And I love the arc of your career and how it ties together so well. I appreciate the work that you're doing here in our community. Where can people reach you if they uh, wanted to reach out and learn more about what you do? Uh, just go on our website, flblaw.com, and uh, you can be connected to our, our practice areas, to me, to whatever you need. And we're always happy to help anyone here in the Lehigh Valley community or beyond with uh, any legal services or anything else they might need. All right. Thanks again for joining us. We appreciate it on this episode of Leading with Purpose. And hope you have a, a great rest of the year. Good luck to you and your family in the pandemic. 
Thank you very much, Dennis. The same to you as well. I wish you and your family all the best going forward. Morton Brown Family Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. More information is available at our website, www.mortonbrownfw.com.